our God good. Amen. Good morning, Bethel Church. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. It's a brand new year, and we're kicking off a brand new series, Big Picture, Seeing the Story from Eden to Eternity. Over the next five weeks, pastors Craig, Jonas, and I will take us on a 30,000-foot flyover of the entire Bible from cover to cover. The famous painter Paul Signac had a fascinating style. If you look individually at his brushstrokes, it's difficult to tell what he's painting. Everything looks abstract. But once you zoom out, the picture becomes clear. We see a ship bay, sun shimmering over the water with a single rowboat at its center. When we zoom back in, we see that rowboat because we know the big picture. The same is true with the Bible. Our prayer is that this series will help you zoom out to see how each of the Bible's brushstrokes fit into the big picture. When you zoom in on individual chapters and verses throughout the year, you'll know where they fit. Fasten your seatbelts, prepare for takeoff. This is the big picture. And this morning's message, from Eden to Exodus, will cover Genesis through Deuteronomy. We'll meet several of the so-called heroes of the Old Testament, people like Adam, Abraham, and Moses. We'll learn that they were never really heroes at all, but that they point forward to the true hero of God's story. Finally, we'll be challenged to rethink our own stories and share God's stories with people in our lives. Let's start our journey like all journeys should start. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. You've given us the story from Genesis through Revelation, and you've placed us in this story as supporting characters in the ongoing saga of salvation. Lord, help us to play our part well, to magnify you as the hero, and to cherish our role as your sidekick. Illuminate your word to us this morning and speak to us. We pray this all in your powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. The Bible is a long story, over 600,000 words. That's as long as the Lord of the Rings or twice as long as the Chronicles of Narnia. But unlike the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, everything in this story is true. The story opens with seven Hebrew words, Bereshith barach Elohim et hashemayim v'ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything created has a cause. You have parents who have parents and so on. But causes can't go infinitely backwards. There had to be something that started it all. Someone. Hebrews 3, 4. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. 
Here the story zooms in. Genesis 2.8, now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, the name of the second river, the Gihon, the name of the third river, Tigris, and the name of the fourth river, Euphrates. Our story starts in modern-day Iraq, in a garden at the head of four ancient rivers. Two trees grow at its center. One gives life, the other gives knowledge of good and evil. You can actually visit the headwaters of these four rivers today, although the original vegetation has long withered. Adam's story continues in 2.16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will die. Why didn't God want Adam to know good and evil? Isn't knowledge good? Not always. If you've ever known a survivor of abuse or a soldier with PTSD, they wish they could forget some of the evil they know. In 2.18, the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, Ezer suitable for him. God called the man Adam and the woman Eve. The Hebrew word for helper is ezer. It does not mean servant or second. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament, almost always referring to God. Psalm 33:20, the Lord is our help, ezer and shield. When it's not used of God, it's used of military allies. God made men and women both in his image to partner together. Eve isn't Adam's servant. She's Adam's ally. In the garden, God gives Adam and Eve a choice. The tree of eternal life with him or the tree of knowing what life apart from God is like. How'd they do? Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. What did Adam and Eve gain? Knowledge of sin and shame. And what did they lose? innocence, and intimacy with God. When we broke God's one law, we broke our relationships with God and with others. Every evil in the world, abuse, broken homes, cancer, depression, can be traced back to breaking God's law. Even though the story is a tragedy, there's a thread of hope. Before banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God provides a sacrifice to cover their shame. 
A few thousand years later, a savior is born from Adam's lineage whose sacrifice covers our shame once and for all. That savior is Jesus. Adam isn't the hero of our story, but he foreshadows the hero to come. The God of Abraham. Adam and Eve have kids who have kids who have kids. Some follow God, others don't. By Genesis 12, no one followed God. Well, almost no one. Enter Abram. Abram didn't grow up in a good Christian home. Christ wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years. He didn't grow up in a good Jewish home either. Judah, for whom Jews are named, wouldn't be born for another three generations. Abram grew up in an idol-making shop. An idol is something you put first in your life, ahead of God. Their idols were statues they literally called gods. Our idols might be sports teams, career advancement, romance, entertainment, or even our own image, hashtag selfie. What would you say is first in your life? Back to Abram. The rabbis tell this story. Abram's father owned an idol-making shop, and like most family businesses, everyone helped out. Displays had to be set up, floors swept, purchases delivered. While the customers worshipped these idols, Abram knew how they were made. For him, they were simply stone, with eyes that could not see, mouths that could not speak, feet that could not move. One day, Abram could take it no longer. He took a hammer and began smashing the idols in his father's shop, one by one, until only the largest remained. Hearing his father's voice outside, Abram placed the hammer in the largest idol's stone hands and hid behind the counter. His father asked, who did this? A small voice answered from behind the counter, the largest idol did it. Son, do you think I'm a fool? The father shouted. These idols are nothing but stone. Abram replied, then why do you worship them? Fast forward 60 years to Genesis 12. God, the real God, gets Abram's attention. Genesis 12:1. the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's an incredible promise, but there are two problems. First, a great nation in Abram's day meant he would have enough kids and grandkids and great-grandkids that they'd be their own nation. Abram had exactly zero kids. He was 75 years old and his wife was 65. Wasn't he too old to father a nation? Second, very few people worshiped God in Abram's day. 
How could God make Abram's name great? Wouldn't people just laugh at him for following God? Still, Abram leaves everything. His country, his people, his father's household to follow God. Here's how far he followed. Over 2,000 miles from Ur to Canaan. That's like walking from Fargo to Mexico City. Abram follows this up with something incredibly stupid. Genesis 16, 1. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave, so she said to Abram, go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram has a kid with his wife's slave, and what's worse, it's his wife's idea. Abram and Sarai aren't the heroes of our story. But God doesn't give up on them. He renames them Abraham and Sarah. And sure enough, on Abraham's 100th birthday, Sarah gives birth to their promised baby boy, Isaac. God always keeps his promises. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there on the mountain I will show you. Wait a minute, isn't Isaac the promised child through whom God would build a nation? How can he do that if Isaac's dead? Isaac's equally confused. He asks his dad in 22.7, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Remember that. When they reached the place God had told him about, he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your only son. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns. He went and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Why is it called the Lord will provide? Future tense. Didn't God already provide? God provided a ram. But Abraham said God would provide a what? A lamb. 2,000 years later, God does. God sacrifices his only son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, on that very same mountain. The Lord will provide. Abraham isn't the hero of our story, but he foreshadows the hero to come. Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, whom God renames Israel. Israel's sons sell their brother Joseph to Egyptian slave traders for silver coins. They strip their brother of his robe. Yet Joseph rises from slavery to become second in command over Egypt. 
When famine strikes Israel, Joseph feeds them from Egypt's storehouses. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph saying in 50:22, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives." 1500 years later, another man would be sold for silver coins and stripped of his robe. Jesus' suffering went further, tortured and killed upon a cross. They intended to harm him, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. Turn the page to the book of Exodus. Israel overstays their welcome in Egypt. Exodus 1.8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. The new king enslaves Israel and orders in Exodus 1.22, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. This wasn't a pool party. This was genocide. But one Hebrew mother hid her baby in a basket among the reeds. In Exodus 2.5, Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds. She saw the baby and felt sorry for him. She named that baby Moses. The God of Moses. Moses grew up as the grandson of Pharaoh himself. Day after day, Moses watched from luxury as his people suffered in slavery. After 40 years, he could take it no longer. Exodus 2.11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses wanted justice for Israel but murdering an Egyptian slave driver. That's not justice. Exodus 2.15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses, in one moment of anger, loses everything. One good or bad decision can change the course of your entire life. Thus begins Moses' 40-year detour in the middle of nowhere. Moses meets a girl, marries, has kids, and tends his father-in-law's flock until he's old and gray. The end. Or so he thinks. But God shows up and changes everything. Exodus 3, 1, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. 
at this most unlikely place, God calls Moses to rescue his people. Moses isn't sure at first. He doubts himself. 3.11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He doubts his audience for one. What if they don't believe me and say the Lord didn't appear to you? He makes excuses for 10. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Even though Moses doubts and makes excuses, he still obeys. What are our excuses? I get more involved at church, but I'm too busy at work. I'd share my faith with my neighbors, but I'm not great with words. Moses had excuses, but he moved past them and obeyed. Moses is 80 years old when he answers God's call. A shout out to our silver-haired saints. It's not too late to answer God's call. Moses returns to Egypt and tells Pharaoh, let my people go, or else God will send plagues upon Egypt. Water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Plague after plague, Pharaoh won't listen. Moses warns Pharaoh of a final plague when God would take his firstborn son. Still, Pharaoh won't listen. So the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 12, verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that each man is to take a lamb for his family. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animal. The blood will be a sign to you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Israel obeys and marks the doors with lamb's blood. God calls down the plague upon Egypt, but God passes over the marked houses. That's why it's called Passover. Pharaoh loses his firstborn son. Grieved, Pharaoh lets God's people go. And they pack their bags for the promised land. Israel's Passover is a big story, but it points to an even bigger one. 1,400 years later, another Passover lamb is sacrificed. His name is Jesus. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Back to the story. In Exodus 14, 5, Pharaoh changes his mind, saying, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Pharaoh's armies trap God's people against the Red Sea. Still, Moses trusts God. And in Exodus 14, 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Wow. God's people escape along the bed of the sea. The waters close behind them and they begin their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. The wilderness journey is hard, but the next three books show how God provides everything they need. In Leviticus, God gives them laws to govern them. In Numbers, God gives them manna and quail to feed them. In Deuteronomy, God gives Moses one final sermon. They're standing on the bank of the Jordan River, 60 feet from the promised land. Moses gathers the people and says, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had, Vahavsa et Adonai Leheka, Bekol Levavka, Uvkal Novshika. Orthodox Jews call this the Shema, and they recite it daily. Here's what it means. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God is the hero of our story. Love him and put him first. It was a long journey through the wilderness. It took them 40 years to reach the border of the promised land. But God had prepared Moses. His 40 years in Pharaoh's courts prepared him to deal with Pharaoh. His 40 years in the Midian desert prepared him to guide God's people through the wilderness. Our highs and lows aren't just a part of our story. They're a part of God's story. Maybe you've had a successful career and God's equipped you to mentor someone to succeed. Maybe you've lost a loved one and God's equipped you to comfort someone in their grief. God brings Moses up to the promised land, but not into it. Moses dies 60 feet away. Moses isn't the hero of our story, but he foreshadows the hero to come. Every great story has a hero. We meet them on page one, and we journey with them from cover to cover. From page one of The Hobbit, we read, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, and his name was Baggins. From page one of the Chronicles of Narnia, we read, there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Yet the Bible doesn't mention Adam until chapter two. And we certainly don't journey with him until the end of the Bible. Adam, Abraham, Moses, they all die before the end of Deuteronomy. Who do we meet on page one? In the beginning, God. The hero of Adam's story isn't Adam. It's the God of Adam who provides a sacrifice to cover their shame. The hero of Abraham's story isn't Abraham. It's the God of Abraham 
who pledges to sacrifice his only son as the sacrificial lamb. The hero of Moses' story isn't Moses. It's the God of Moses, whose judgment passes over everyone, marked by the blood of the lamb. We've met several of the so-called heroes of the Old Testament, but I'd be failing you if I didn't introduce you personally to the true hero. He is the God of Adam, Abraham, and Moses, and his name is Jesus. In Genesis 3, 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In the New Testament, Jesus is the lamb sacrificed to cover our shame. In Genesis 22, 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. In the New Testament, Jesus is the lamb sacrificed on that same mountain. In Exodus 12, 13, the Lord said to Moses, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. In the New Testament, Jesus is the lamb whose blood spares us from judgment. Jesus is the God of the Bible. He came down to earth that first Christmas, lived the perfect life we never could, and died the death we deserved on the cross. He rose again, defeating sin and shame forever. That's why John writes on page one of his gospel, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the hero of God's story, and he wants to be the hero of your story too. If you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, you can start right now. You can pray silently or out loud. Just tell him, Lord Jesus, I'm yours save me. The words don't matter as much as the decision. Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. Then tell another Christian about your decision, and they'll help you grow your relationship with God. Earlier, we read the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Moses continues, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. With Moses' last sermon, he urges God's people to share God's stories wherever they go. Where do we get these God stories? First, we get God stories from the Bible. The Bible is 66 books from over 40 authors writing over thousands of years telling one story about God. So why not start the new year by picking a Bible reading plan? The Bible app has over 10,000 reading plans to choose from. You can download the app or visit bible.com slash reading plans. One of our favorites is the Blue Letter Bible chronological reading plan. The link is available on the website, e-news, 
and on the screen here. We've also ordered hundreds of physical copies if you'd like a free copy. Pick a Bible reading plan for the new year. Look for God as the hero. Second, we get God stories from our own experience. How has God been the hero of your story? This week, I had a bad cold and completely lost my voice. God gave me back enough of a voice to preach just this morning. Who knows if I'll have it this afternoon, but God is faithful. Finally, we get God's stories from other believers. When you hear a great story, pass it on. Adam, Abraham, and Moses told their story. Now it's time to tell yours. Let me leave you with one thing. How is God the hero of your story? Share a God story with someone this week. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. You are the hero of our story. From Genesis to Revelation, you have had us in mind. You have been unfolding a plan of redemption from the start. We are in awe of you. And we humbly ask that our lives can magnify you as the hero and us as the sidekick. We pray this in the powerful name of you, Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,